0: you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. That's what Carter Adams and Dan Mikowski did. They each pledged $3 a month to keep our podcast going. Go to it'salljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate.
1: point of journalism is to help people understand the world around them. The point of the kind of journalism I do is to help them understand what their government does and what DC does. And if they have a question and I can answer it and it's posed in a not mean way, then that's pretty cool because you didn't used to be able to really do that.
0: Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about digital media. Joining me in the studio today is Shauna Thomas, the D.C. Bureau Chief for Vice News Tonight on HBO.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. We actually danced around your title a little bit. That was fun. <laughs> um, but no, this this is great. And uh, I'm glad that you came in. We, we kind of met, or actually I, I approached you after you gave a presentation at a Facebook v- event recently in D.C. where they were kind of explaining who they were to the local press and you made a great presentation i thought about vice news and and what you you do on your show and it was just a couple of weeks after the charlottesville yeah. episode which everybody was still talking about and you answered some questions about so i heard all that and i said i need to i need to grab you and ask you to be i didn't actually I didn't physically grab you i just came up and, and very politely introduced no no myself. it's very polite okay I appreciate thank you it. good okay anyway you're here so, one of the things I like to do when I, when I get people into the, to the podcast is ask them their journalist journey. Sort how how did you get here? You know, what got you into news?
1: Yeah, so um my journey is pretty simple in some ways. When I was an undergrad, I got a degree in political communication from GW, George Washington University in Washington DC. Hail to the Buff, hail to the Blue. A fine university. A fine university. Um and I kind of thought I would go into campaign management or something like that. But all of my internships and what I've always loved is television news. And so I interned for Fox News one summer as their White House intern, which turned into a part-time job as um, a booking assistant and like an assistant on the weekends, which turned into a very short full-time job. Then I took a detour and became a lobbyist for the meatpacking industry. And kind of what that did is it taught me a lot about how Congress works and how sort of fundraising works and a bunch of other things in the appropriations process. And it really convinced me that what I really loved was journalism and what I really, really loved was broadcast journalism. So I left the National Meat Association and went to graduate school at the University of Southern California, Annenberg, fight on, and got my degree in, in broadcast journalism and then got into a program, sort of an early producing program at NBC News called the News Associates Program. And at the time they took about five or six people a year. It is a minority recruiting tool for NBC News. And you go to New York and you spend one year at NBC doing four different experiences, three months each. So I worked for the Today Show for three months, basically logging tape and assisting and doing a little bit of producing and kind of learning how NBC works. I did three months on the network desk as an assignment editor, which is I suggest for everybody who is interested in news and a career in news, especially TV news, working on the assignment desk allows you to understand how a company works in the best possible way and lets you understand like who are all of the players that make television happen. And that assisted me in my career for the whole time. I then did three months on Meet the Press in 2007, moved down here to DC, got to work with Tim Russert, who was one of my idols, and then went back and actually worked on what's known as the politics desk which they were gearing up for the 2008 election so that turned into a full-time job i helped plan the 2008 campaign coverage for nbc news because of that job and then proceeded every couple of years to try to like change my situation at nbc so i worked for a now defunct small unit called next media that created content for outside clients that was news like for their digital sites that's the best way to explain it and then i moved back down to dc did Capitol Hill producing for NBC, White House producing for NBC and then became the senior digital editor and senior producer of Meet the Press with Chuck Todd. And then after doing that for a couple of years, I went to Vice News to be part of creating a whole new news show on HBO, something I had never done. I went from the longest running show on television to a show that literally did not exist when I took the job. And so I have a couple of titles on Vice News Tonight on HBO. I'm the DC bureau chief. I'm also a senior producer, and I am an occasional correspondent for the show.
0: Okay. Well, yeah. you, you ended by saying correspondent because I was going to circle back and say you you got a you got a broadcasting degree. At what point did you did you decide that you wanted to go in the production end, or is it something that this is kind of the way it works out? That- oh,
1: I always wanted to be a producer. In the times when I've done television, even at Vice News, it's kind of like I've fallen into it, or they needed someone, or something like that. I went to USC specifically because I realized that there were some skills I did not have. And USC has a really great broadcast program. So I got there. They're like, here, pick up a camera, learn how to shoot. You don't have to shoot like the best cameraman in the world, and I never will be able to. But a prosumer camera, I know how to turn it on. I know how to focus it. I know how to shoot in the situations where it's called for. They're like, here, here's Avid. Learn how to edit. We're going to teach you. We're also going to teach you more about writing for broadcast print and online. We're going to teach you a little of online programming to try to build websites. I'm still not good at that. But it was it was a very like you have to know everything about news. You have to know how to approach everything to be able to sort of survive in this world. And USC was a great experience in you need to be like a holistic journalist. There's no such thing as a job you shouldn't be able to do to some extent.
0: Yeah, that's the idea of you know the, we live in a sort of a, a, a platform agnostic world in which we're presenting presenting news in lots of different forms. We make we may report one story, but it's gonna it's gonna come out as a radio show. It's gonna come out as a web piece. It's gonna be video. It's gonna be whatever.
1: And you've so- got to know what works on what platforms as well. So the same write up that you put on Facebook doesn't work on Twitter and something else you may use for YouTube isn't going to be what you actually post on your own website. So it's also learning about all of that kind of stuff too. And
0: I think newsrooms are getting a little bit better about understanding that, that they are different things. In the the newsroom that I'm in right now, I'm not telling any secrets out of school that, you know, there was a point where I had to sort of convince them, no, we need to do... You know, once the story is reported and posted on the the website, that's just kind of the beginning. Yeah. Because there's lots of stuff we need to do on the other end that's going to benefit us. And and I think at this point now they've come around to that. I'm not the only person who was advocating for that, but it was a learning curve. Um,
1: I think a lot of news organizations struggled with that. I think a, a lot of them are much, much better at it. They know you have to have staffs to do this kind of stuff that reporting and writing is part of it, but also how you promote and how you utilize the Internet is a
0: full-time job what do you like about digital news
1: i like in some ways i like the immediacy of digital news i also like building a television package and spending a lot of time with something and creating something beautiful but one of the things that i loved about covering capitol hill and the white house was being right up there with the member of congress or being in the room with the president of the united states and getting a lot of unfiltered information and i know we can have a whole conversation about unfiltered information but It's you get to learn something so quickly that that to me is is still exciting. I mean, I love Twitter. I've loved Twitter since I got on Twitter in 2007. And since I left NBC and I went to Vice News, we clearly don't have as big of a news staff as NBC News. I created text alerts from my friends who cover the Hill from their Twitter feed, because in some ways that's like an AP wire for me.
0: So you're not working at a 90-year-old media organization?
1: No. I work for an organization that knows that people have to know how to target certain social media and certain digital platforms, and it is part of the thought process with all of our pieces.
0: I also like the immediacy of it. And and the fact is something that you pointed out that is, is really great is just knowing that I'm hearing this now, and I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to share this with a lot of people. There's so many barriers that have been eliminated. Yeah for good and for bad. It
1: also allows people to talk to you. It allows, I mean, sometimes that can be very bad, but sometimes people can ask questions and you can clarify for them in real time. And the point of journalism is to help people understand the world around them. The point of the kind of journalism I do is to help them understand what their government does and what DC does. And if they have a question and I can answer it and it's posed in a not mean way, then that's pretty cool because you didn't used to be able to really
0: do that. So as the D.C. Bureau Chief, is your main focus, is it politics? Is it covering Congress and and the White House?
1: Yes. Our main focus is that, but it's also, um, when I send my correspondence out into the world, it's trying to create pieces that make D.C. connect to other cities, other people. How does the federal government affect you? How do you affect the federal government? What is your responsibility in that? And tying those things together. We attempt also to explain things that people don't necessarily understand about how how our government works. So I did a piece on the 25th Amendment because there was all this talk about, you know, should we impeach him? What about the 25th Amendment? Nobody knows about the 25th Amendment. So I got on TV and didn't explain her about one, why that's probably not going to happen to President Trump. But two, here's what it is and here's what it means.
0: Yeah. Again, another great thing about digital media is especially now, I mean, it used to be Everybody kind of jumped on the bandwagon of let's get the news out quickly, let's push it out to as many people as we can. But I think where there's going to be a lot more growth, and I think we're beginning to see it, is in in sort of the explainer realm. Yeah, that we that in, in, with digital media you can. I think mean, like Vox started doing it with their 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 wonderful explainers, where they start with like one card and they just build it out, and they build it out, and build it out. And a lot of people are doing that now.
1: No, and a lot of Vox's headlines are. And, you know, Sarah Cliff, who does healthcare reporting for Vox and who used to, I believe, work for The Washington Post, you know, a lot of times her headlines are the Alexander Murray bill explained. And she just does a great job of explaining what it means, what are the implications of it and and how it fits into a larger package.
0: So how does how does then your show sort of fit in this environment? Because you're not too fast, you're not in the fast lane, but you're not also in the you know here we are explaining everything in the world. where Where do you guys fit?
1: Yeah. so our show kind of lives in this nexus of it is a daily show. It's five nights a week on HBO, but we do not feel the same pressure that let's say the NBC Nightly News or ABC World News feel to do something that is fully comprehensive. And some of that is we have a belief that our audience is a pretty connected audience. This comes from the fact that it's on HBO. And so the major headlines of the day, they've heard about. And they may have read something about and they got a text alert about something or they subscribe to a newspaper or they're just on their computers all day long. And when they come home, what we try to do is we do do some headlines on the show. We try to put in some headlines that you may not have heard already But also we try to do pieces that while you're watching our show, at some point you should say, oh, I didn't know that. That's what we're going for almost every night. In terms especially of DC, a lot of the times we will do something about something that happened that day. But we try to make sure we have some kind of take on it or some kind of analysis that isn't what you've already heard on cable that day. So we spend a lot of time like thinking about like, okay, we know there is this issue happening we know there is this event happening what is a different way to look at this event that our audience wouldn't necessarily expect and one of my jobs is if I can't come up with that or if my correspondents can't come up with that we don't do the story like if I can't value add we just don't do the story
0: yeah and i think you've sort of described this but what what is the what would you say you know oh this this is our story this is the type of story we do
1: well okay so one example Physically. Yeah. What what does that look like physically? That can look like a lot of different things on Vice News. It can look like a 10-minute package. It can look like a six-minute package. It can look like a minute and a half explainer where a correspondent is talking to camera. It can be an animated treatment that goes on for four minutes that our graphics team has worked on for weeks It can be a little short animation, which we call mini streams, or sorry, we call them micro streams, which may just be sort of like one little thing that kind of made us all laugh that's in the news, and we do something that's a little bit like a little take on it in a graphic y way. It can be any number of things. The sort of beauty of Vice News tonight is our boss is open to ideas and we have the staff to pull things off. So if you have an idea that seems crazy in your head, if it's a good enough idea and you can support why our audience would learn from it, our boss will buy it and we'll figure out how to do it.
0: So who do you see as your audience? Are you are you aiming yo- younger than maybe some of the news outlets, you, the cable and uh, broadcaster are aiming at?
1: Yes. So our audience, we know our audience is younger. The vice audience in general is like the youngest news consuming audience in the country. So um, they're like 12 or 13. Yeah, right? exactly. They're definitely 11 and reading about pot. No, that's not true. We know the HBO audience itself skews a little older than the rest of the Vice audience, and this is because HBO costs money, and those are usually people who have jobs and are a little bit older, and they want to subscribe to HBO. Our website audience skews a little bit younger. It tends to be late 20s and 30s. The HBO show tends to be in the 40s and then older. And one of the funny, weird things we learned about Vice News Tonight that nobody expected, including HBO, was people actually go home and watch it at 7.30 in real time. (laughs) And I giggle about this because we talk about, you know, the CBS Evening News and it's on at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time. And no one is home at that point and no one actually watches it in real time. And so there was never really an expectation that it would become that kind of appointment programming. We were hoping people would DVR it. HBO is hoping people subscribe to HBO now and watch it online or on their tablet and people do, but they also watch it at 7:30, or sometimes they watch it slightly time delayed at 8 o'clock on their DVRs. And it was it was just not something we expected.
0: So, when, well, when does when does the new show drop?
1: It airs 7:30 p.m. Eastern time on HBO. Does it air live? E, no, it depends on Li- your definition. Live-ish. <laughs> depends on your definition of live. Okay, okay. So because the show. No, I need a
0: real answer. No, 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 no fine, I can I give you
1: idea. a somewhat real answer. Because the show has... There are a lot of things we do with this show that don't happen to another network news show. As in, we have color artists and we have mixers and we go through all kinds of sort of more of a movie or documentary process with every episode than I had ever experienced before in news. That means we probably need to be done with the pieces about 30 minutes or an hour before 730. We can roll the show out live, but everything is on some is, for lack of a better term, everything is on tape. The narration's on tape. It all is. But sometimes we roll it out at 730 from our control room in Brooklyn to HBO and then HBO puts it on TV. We try to actually get it
0: out earlier. That is kind of cool. So what's Let's talk about the life of a story. Yeah. You know, you have an idea for a story, when does that appear? When do when do you sort of, you know, put it into the system and get the production going so that it becomes a wonderful Vice News story?
1: Yeah, so tonight? it really depends on how fast the story needs to go out into the field. We we have an every two week meeting where the politics team has a pitch meeting with our executive producers. And those are usually for like longer form stories, stuff where we think we're going to run at least six minutes, if not more. And in that, each correspondent and producer gets to basically support their pitch. If it gets green lit, then usually it's like, OK, get something on the schedule now, get everything booked. They have an idea of the characters they want to talk to before they get to that point. From sort of shooting an entire story to actually airing really just depends on. On the story and how long it takes to shoot, and how many elements there are, and how many places they need to travel. There is not a guidebook for it because each story is different. I I, know it's not a great answer, but it's true.
0: I I would imagine the flexibility. I probably you probably really like the flexibility that we can stretch if we need to stretch, or that we can let's pile a bunch of stuff on top of each other because they'll work better together. Oh, totally. Um,
1: I mean, I think one great example is two members of my team did this piece about Chicago gangs, and that's not exactly how it started. What it started as was a piece about a promise that one of Trump's advisors during the campaign, who then was coming to the White House, Pastor Daryl Scott, made to Trump in a meeting very early on once Trump took office. And it was about, you know, the gangs would love to meet with you, President Trump, They, you know, want to figure out a way out of the sort of violence that's happening in Chicago. I've talked to them. They want to do something with the president of the United States. And my team sort of looked at this and I looked at it and we were like, has he really talked to the gangs in Chicago? Let's go find out. And what we did was the different factions in Chicago, we talked to them, the kind of people you talk to when you want to try to communicate with the gangs, all of them. We're like, well, Daryl Scott has reached out to us, but we haven't heard anything about the president talking to us. And it became this sort of like long tail where we unwound how Daryl Scott got to that moment at the White House where he said that and what he actually meant. And then as we started to unwind that, we were like, this story is longer and bigger than we thought it was. And then made connections with some of the gang community in Chicago and went and talked to them about, what one, what would they want to tell the president? And two, has anyone talked to them about talking to the president. And they were like, heck no. No, of course not. And the juxtaposition of also these meetings, like they kept trying to make these meetings in Chicago with Daryl Scott. They kept falling through. We were there every time something fell through until finally there was a meeting of some Chicago leaders and Daryl Scott at a hotel that was across the street from the White House. And we were there for that. There were no gang members there. There was no President Trump there. There was just talking with people who some of which have a, a vested interest in Chicago, some of which probably don't, but probably nothing was going to happen because of that meeting. That was a piece that we thought about getting on at multiple points. We ended up spending months on it and we're like, oh, when they finally had that meeting in D.C., now we're done. Now we're done with the piece. We took it from start to finish. And in between, you saw how, how hard it is for those gang members in Chicago. Then we were ready to do it. And it ended up being, I think, an 11 or 12 minute piece that
0: we aired. Now that's a long piece for you. Guys. That is
1: a that is a long piece, but I hear ten, tomorrow night we're going to do a ten minute piece on migrants oh on boats. So,
0: so the, the the piece that you described, do you think that that's a, a, a typical story in a typical world, or is this is this uh, something that's a type of story that's unique to this administration?
1: I think it's a type of story that's unique to this administration. I think in previous administrations, someone might have had that thought in a meeting with the press in the room, but they may not have said it out loud because they may not have been sure they could follow through. There
0: may have Uh, been a point where somebody just bailed and said, yeah, this is not going to happen.
1: Yeah, or just that you wouldn't present something to the president, I feel, in other administrations, publicly especially, if you did not think this was something that was going to happen. I covered the Obama administration. I was working in news under the Bush administration, but I didn't cover it closely. There were just protocols about what members of a white house staff or even advisors to a white house staff would say in public because you never want to embarrass the president of the united states
0: yeah there wasn't a lot of talk in the uh, obama administration no yeah no. Was pretty, pretty, <laughs> they, they, they were a pretty good job of controlling their message I yes think, they did to the detriment of the press <laughs> sometimes just made our jobs no. that much that's no, more, it just, more challenging
1: it, yeah it made our jobs more challenging they they do Not think, that
0: this administration is not no, challenging in its own way. But I don't on. think
1: any White House actually likes the press that much, but I do think they tend to respect the First Amendment and they respect the job the press is doing. I think this White House thinks that the stories that are critical of the president are because we don't like the president, whereas I would say most stories about White Houses are critical of the president.
0: Well, I think it's supposed to be part of our job is to be we're
1: supposed to question Truth that to it is it is what it is
0: it is what it is so you know 12 minutes my god that's a, that's an incredibly long story but yeah. <laughs> i just watched um the charlottesville story which 22. was 22 minutes yeah. as i described it 22 minutes of hate but not me hating it but just reflecting of what was going hate. on hate in that in that world let's talk about that story sure uh, let's talk about it backwards what what impact did that have on you guys
1: i think It made a lot of people in the country know that Vice News has a television show five (laughs) nights a week on HBO when they did not know it before. It really was. It was insane how that flew around the Internet. And one of the things just, you know, we were sort of talking about tactics on the Internet and tactics on social And one of the things we decided to do with that episode, which we do not do with every episode, is we release the entire episode for free online, like on all platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Like we just put it out there. And some of that was because we we knew by the end of the day as we were crafting that piece that what we had on our hands was something that a lot of people don't get to see. And it was chilling and it made you think and it made you a little bit scared about the country and that it was worth getting as many eyeballs on it as possible. Did I think 40 million people would watch it? No, that wasn't, we weren't thinking that. But it really, I will say it did kind of put Vice News Tonight on the
0: map. So, and the correspondent's name and her camera and her crew?
1: Yeah, Ellie Reeve was the correspondent. Um, the producers were a guy named Josh Davis out of New York City, a producer named Tracy Jarrett out of Washington, D.C. here. And then a couple of different cameramen, Zach Caldwell and Orlando de Guzman.
0: So I, I know we had um, a week or two, actually, it was a week before um, the Charlottesville protests. We had Baynard Woods from the Baltimore City paper, and he, he, he was talking to me as he was leaving. Yeah, I'm going down to Charlottesville. It's going to be a big thing, is what he said. That's the way he talks and i said well cool well you know good luck i hope everything goes well so I, I think in in the media certainly in around the the dc area there was an awareness of this was going to be something yes we need we need to you know mobilize the news to go down and cover this what was your thinking um your thinking your crew's thinking about okay how are we going to tackle this
1: so our team actually in one of those politics bitch meetings i'd Uh, just mentioned.
0: Hey, there's this big thing going on in Charlottesville.
1: Yeah, I mean, about, I would say, four or six weeks before it happened, just our our people do a pretty good job of researching things and like looking for story ideas. And there had been that KKK march in Charlottesville uh, months ago. So we were attuned to that to a certain extent. And then as this thing got closer and we started doing more research and we started sort of seeing even just the metric of how many people had said, yes, I'm going on Facebook, on both sides of the issue. We were like, okay, this is going to be bigger. And then uh, after talking to sort of my executive producers, we decided to assign it to Ellie Reeve. And the reason why we assigned it to her is because she has spent the last few years reporting on the alt-right, even before she came to Vice News. So she has relationships within the alt-right community. They are fraught relationships sometimes, but she does, she has talked to a lot of these people there are a lot of people within the All right community that trust her as much as they can. And as we got closer, we sat down and we were like, how do we want to approach this? And the reason, our reasoning about this is our show does not air on Saturday and Sunday. We have a website and we put a lot of pieces up, uh, a lot of text pieces especially, but we knew that we would not be making television again till Monday and the event happened on Saturday. And if it was a dud, it was a dud and maybe there was nothing for Monday but if something happened and it was explosive kind of what we saw we needed to be in a place where by Monday our story wasn't old
0: and so what you get a lot of help with that keep, well, you got a lot of help keeping that story uh,
1: yeah uh, but you, alive. what you don't want to do is if you know the the footage of people fighting with each other or the footage of people chanting or anything like that that stuff you're all going to see on cable all through the weekend and you're going to see it on the Today Show and the Today Show in the morning is going to have some kind of story that takes the best of that footage and they're going to feel completely justified because they are the morning show of record for some for instance or Good Morning America would be mad at me but I'm a former NBC or so Today Show. <laughs> and we went into it thinking like what is the story we can tell that will still be something you haven't seen or you have not heard by 730 p.m. on Tuesday night And as we started looking into some of the people who were organizing it, we sort of Ellie was like, you know, Chris Cantwell, who I've had a couple of conversations with, he has a big group going. Maybe he'll let us in bed with him. And and everyone has asked Ellie this question um, about, wait, how did you get that access? And the answer to that question is, we asked. We asked, and he said yes. And so one of the things that benefited us is because we knew we were doing that, we got to Charlottesville on Thursday night. We were there on Friday, so we were there. Some of the interviews you see in the piece were done on Friday beforehand. And because we were there on Friday, that footage of the tiki torches on the UVA campus, there's some other footage out there of it. There's definitely some cell phone footage, but the footage we shot with our cameras and our style, which is sort of like the chilling kickoff of the piece, not very many other people had it because not many other people were there beforehand to try to tell a full story. Mm -hmm. And then we just kept going with that story through Saturday night and Sunday morning and Sunday night and talking to Chris Cantwell during, before, during and after um, and building a whole story around this. Now, we did not go into that thinking we were gonna tell a 22 minute full episode story. We thought we'd tell a very quickly turned around five or six minute piece depending on what happened. That's kind of what we were writing on Saturday night as well. And one of the things I love about Vice News and that I love about my my boss, Josh Tarangel, is I had been working with the producer on the script sort of remotely. And the producer had gone in and was working with an editor and sort of putting the best moments together and scripting and kind of working in tandem very furiously because we were going to get something on air on Monday. And around 8 p.m. that night, my boss went into the office and looked at what they had done. And he called me around 830 and he said, here's the deal. I think we're going to do the full episode. They've got the stuff. The story is there. The structure is there. I don't know if we will pull off editing a full episode by Monday night. So actually on Monday, we did two episodes. We did a sort of shortened version of what you end up seeing and then um, other pieces, like just sort of a normal episode with that kind of the epicenter of it. And it really became we worked on both episodes until about five o'clock. And at that point, we wouldn't have been able to get to like the colorists and mix artists. You couldn't have done both of those episodes. So we just were like, you know what? We're gonna finish that twenty-two minute episode, and it was full speed ahead to get that on television.
0: Yeah, and, and um, it's quite a quite a package. It's it's riveting from minute one all the way to minute twenty-two to yeah. to the very end, and for a lot of different reasons. Um, I think certainly because of the subject. The access that she had was amazing. I I was thinking back to – I was trying to think, well, what is this like? Because, you know, ever since the Vietnam War and and, um, the government has gotten much more savvy about what access they allow people to get into, situations like that, and the same with the police. So the fact that she was embedded, it seemed like like a Vietnam-era war story where she's with the troops and as they're moving forward – and the story sort of unfolds, and the fact that she gets in the in the in the van yeah. and goes with them, and they let her in the van, they, and the camera, they joke, and, and the, camera, the producer they joke about it. You yeah, can well, see
1: her producer in the corner trying to not be in the shot in that shot.
0: And what's and what was great about it was the 22 minutes, which in the world is not really that long, but but is in the kind television of, world. In The television <laughs> it's forever. Yeah, it's it's your it's your Gone with the Wind. It it gives you it gives you room to tell the entire story, even though it doesn't tell the entire story. There's no. a lot of other things that you couldn't include in it, but you touch on all the, the big things that people knew about the story and then expose them to things that they hadn't seen. The, um, the, the voices of the alt-right there, yeah. they're, they're, you know, in their own words, why they were doing it, what they were afraid of, what, how empowered they felt. And, you know, the fact that you, allow those voices to to express themselves it helps to tell the story the larger story and even though your reporter was embedded and she asked i'm sure she asked a bunch of questions that it, it didn't get in on the show but yeah. the, the ones that were in there they were very smart and pointed and sort of they weren't judgmental by any means, but they were they were still holding the the source's you know, to task is questioning, well, why are you doing this or or, or like that? So it was very powerful storytelling.
1: Yeah. And I think um, this is why some of those communities are willing to talk to Ellie is that she does not come off as judgmental and that she wants to hear what you have to say. And they want to tell it. They want to express their worldview. They don't feel like they need to be just typing it on a 4chan forum in their basement anymore. Um, I think the question that you start to run into, and, and this is something that we ran into advice, was at what point have you given them enough time? Right. Have you ever given them enough time? Or at what point does it seem like glorifying this versus actually critically looking at it? Um, and I think that's something every news organization and newsroom probably struggles with when you sort of elevate these fringe elements. Right.
0: But, you know, the, of those 40 million people, how many of them had gone to Fort chan and these other sites and heard these words that had a vague idea of, of who David Duke was and what his philosophy was? Yeah. But actually hear them speak and hear, hear the other people speak.
1: And see them march in public. No hoods on, man.
0: Right. So and that that tells a story. Yeah. Which is, you know, again, the power of video, and the power of being able to deliver it to people into people's homes so that they can sort of make those judgments. Yeah, I mean, and it does become an ethical question is, you know, when do when are you becoming get, allowing them too much access so that you've given them a podium. Yeah. I think because yeah, I think it was because it was tied to a news event and there were there was a bigger story to tell about Charlottesville. Uh, I think it became less of a uh you know, a, a, a podium for them to to espouse whatever. I think yes. you had the the bigger story about what was going on in the street to tell that story. And I think, as you
1: pointed out, Ellie did a very eloquent job of pushing back on them on some of the uh, on some of the things that, especially Chris Cantwell said, that kind of take you aback. That still take me aback when I watch right. the piece now. And that is an important element of it not just being a mouthpiece for white nationalist.
0: Yeah. No, is an incredible, incredible um, piece of work, which you guys should be very proud of. It. Thank and I'm, you. I assume that you are. And you deserve all the kudos that you've, you've gotten about it. So going forward, what is it that you, you look forward to covering? What do I look forward to covering? At this point, I don't know if you've noticed, there's a <laughs> lot of stuff going on right now in America. I feel
1: like if I mention something that isn't going on, it will happen and I'll have to cover 17 different things.
0: I, I, there's not a wealth. There's not a, there's not a um a paucity uh, of things not. to cover. I think a
1: couple of things. The pure politics girl in me wants to know as much as possible about what is going on inside the Republican Party as it figures itself out, as well as what is going on inside the Democratic Party as it figures itself out. Both of those will continue to be a story. And just because the Republican Party is definitely more on the headlines today doesn't mean that there is not a Identity struggle in the Democratic Party and their identity can't just be we don't like Donald Trump. So that's number one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've said several times over the last year, like looking at something and going, oh, the Republican Party is broken. And then months later going, oh. oh, the Democratic Party's broken. Yeah. And then now I don't know what what did what's going on.
1: Yeah. And what does that mean for politics and democracy and how our government works? And our government hasn't worked well in years, and it's I, not
0: just this year. I don't think there were parties in the Constitution, were there?
1: No, there were not parties in the I'm Constitution.
0: Just saying, just saying.
1: The Constitution did not lay out a two party system. But I think there's that. I think and I think my my team will do a good job of this as in Vice News tonight. We have to stay on top of the government's reaction and response to Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, as well as Texas and Florida. I haven't been able to convince Congressman Jeb Henzerling of Texas to sit down with me, but he wants to remake the National Flood Insurance Program. And whether the way he wants to do it is right or wrong, there's something wrong with it. And that seems like such a dorky thing, but I'm allowed to do dorky things at Vice News this affects a lot of people, and the program is not solvent. So I am interested in how we are going to keep covering responses to that. And then it's about looking for other stories that are like that. Like, the thing is, there are agencies that help people and that do a lot of stuff in this city, Washington, D.C., that actually do affect people. And sometimes they do their jobs well, and sometimes they don't. But we have to try to stay on those kind of stories.
0: Yeah, it's... What's tiring, I think, <laughs> yeah. sometimes is I mean, there are stories that, that seemed like in any other reality it would be just sort of softballs that okay, this is just this is gonna be handled this way because this is the way that this is Hurricane response. Oh, we you know, FEMA goes in, the army goes in, these things go on, the president comes on and says something, we're gonna do this, he signs some emergency orders, blah, blah, blah. Everything goes on. But everything seems so fraught.
1: It is fraught, and some of that is because of President Trump's Twitter feed. But also, here's the deal. Not everyone from Hurricane Sandy has gotten paid out yet by no. the federal government or their insurance companies. So there is something wrong in the
0: system. Right. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I'm not saying that, the, 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 that by any means the, the somebody should get off the hook for not doing their job.
1: But we get distracted very easily by what President Trump is saying that is tangential to that thing we are trying to cover.
0: Yeah, it gets really annoying when, uh, because we have two TVs in the newsroom, one's C-SPAN and the other is CNN and seeing just the way things just repeat over and over again, little aspects of stories that don't really have a whole lot of meat. Yeah. Not necessarily to criticize the, the, you know, CNN in particular, but it, I mean, you see it everywhere where everybody's being drawn to the, to the shiny light, but what's, what's the big story?
1: I mean, can I can I time date this a little? Yes, please do. Okay. Um, I mean, the whiplash from today that we were talking about President Trump and he's meeting with the Republican senators and it's tax reform and it's full speed ahead on tax reform, which it is on the Hill. And then all of a sudden, Jeff Flake is retiring. He's not going to run for reelection. And so everybody's focus switches there to some very eloquent words Jeff Flake said on the Senate floor today. But the thing we're talking about is basically what he said about the president of the United States. What he was saying had bigger implications for his party and how government works. It was not all about the president, but that's that's what we're gonna talk about.
0: Okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna challenge you, you then. What is it that you do, what is it you say to your team to say, we gotta stay on this these stories? Is that what you say? we got to stay on these stories. I
1: mean, there's a little bit of we've got to stay on these stories. I think one of the things I do is when we know we're going into pitching and I'm talking to people about what they're pitching, I do try to like push them and suggest, hey, let's do some more digging. There's going to be another aspect of the flood insurance story. There's going to be another aspect of what's going in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. Don't forget about looking into those things. I think my team has done a really good job of health care coverage, and continuing to pitch health care coverage and there's open enrollment coming up which will afford a bunch of stories so i think it is very easy to go towards the shiny object but in this current political environment president trump's twitter feed is a shiny object and sometimes it's a lot of fun our show is not just going to do a piece about a tweet which saves me some you know heart palpitations i think that at CNN, they got to put that latest tweet up. You got to fill the 24 hours. Um, <laughs> you
0: got to get the uh, four experts to, to come in and talk and about talk it.
1: about the tweet. I don't have to do that. If the tweet like today we did, we changed on a dime and we did something on Jeff Flake and the conversation between me and New York and our correspondent on the Hill and our producer on the Hill goes back to what I said before, which is what is our take or what is our analysis on this that sheds a different light on it and the take was everyone's going to say that senator flake now that he's free of the binds of running for re-election and trying to walk this line between supporting trump enough so that his base doesn't get all mad but also standing up for what he believes in and finding some weird way to walk that line he's now free to say what he wants right so jeff flake won today except our take is jeff flake didn't win today Donald Trump and Steve Bannon won today. And that's because they've been looking for a way to get Jeff Flake out of that race. They've been looking for a way to get Bob Corker out of that race. You know, there are people that they know they are going to primary. I think Senator Corker and Senator Flake deserve a lot of respect. But what they actually have done is said in a year and a half, we're not going to stand up for anything anymore. We're not going to have that voice in the Senate anymore. And you got to think about what that means as well. So are they the statesmen they're going to seem like when they go on TV for the next year and a half? Maybe. But who is going to take their place when they leave?
0: A lot a lot can happen in the next month and a, or next uh, year and a half. Yes,
1: a lot. A lot. I but mean, also, those seats could go Democrat, which then in the end,
0: Bannon and Trump lose. But so does Mitch McConnell. We all lose in the end. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. No, that's, that's what makes it always, always fascinating. Shauna, thanks for coming in. This has been great. Of course. Thanks for having me. Next time on It's All Journalism. And in that realm, we're looking at things that the audience could type or talk with. So somebody who comes to Quartz or another media organization. But we're also looking
1: at bots that journalists can type or talk with to help them do their jobs.
0: Join us next Thursday, Thanksgiving Thursday, when I talk to John Keefe. He's the head of Quartz's Bot Studio, and we talk about bots bots that can help you tell your news stories better you've been listening to it's all journalism a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com you can also find our podcast episodes on apple podcast stitcher soundcloud google play and podcast one it takes a lot of people to put together an episode of it's all journalism Nicola Grisco is our producer. Amber Healy provides our web content. Nick Dupre provided our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Do you like the work that we're doing here on It's All Journalism? If you do, why not contribute to our Patreon campaign? Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link at the top of the page to find out how you can help support our podcast. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.
1: Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcast1.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC the finish the game podcast with your host sean
0: alexander wrong play sean across the 10 to 5 touchdown seahawks hey this is sean alexander nfl mvp check out my podcast finish the game where i discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an mvp the finish the game podcast find it on itunes the podcast one app podcast one.com or at wtop.com search podcast dc